possible. Can you, is that going to be comfortable for you? <laughs> you can I'll, I'll survive. Okay. I have to say, it's a very big electric cable you've just attached. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> what sort of current are you going to pass through there? Um, my visits to the University of Bath are usually a matter of great pleasure. But this time I'm really not looking forward to what they've got in store for me on your behalf. What you're going to do is you're going to get sort of a, a series of increases in heat and temperature. As I just want you to say at what point you first feel a pain sensation. So when you're ready, tell me when to start. And I'll yeah. Okay, so here it goes. <laughs> Hear the power surging through it and I've no idea what to expect. Oh, 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 ah, ee, ah, ah, ah. Am I, oh, that's terrible. Have I failed? No, not at all. No, there's no, there's no failure. <laughs> this is because it's detecting your threshold. It's less More of what that was about a little later, but it is a key component of what this latest episode of Research with Impact from the University of Bath concerns pain, understanding how big an issue pain is across society and learning how those who cannot escape it can at least deal with it better. I'm Roland Pease and this episode of Research with Impact has brought me to meet some of the team at the university's multidisciplinary Centre for Pain Research. First of all, it's Director, Professor of Psychology, Christopher Eccleston, on why there's a need for such a centre. Although all of us are experts in pain in some ways or other, because it's a part of our everyday life, chronic pain especially, that's pain that lasts for a long time, is very hard to understand, causes a lot of widespread damage to people's lives, and people struggle to make sense of it, and that's what we're here for, to help people make sense of their pain. I mean, is the familiarity of it part of the problem in terms of treating it, in terms of taking it seriously? The cultural familiarity is, yes, because it's common, but it's not unimportant. Just because it's all around you doesn't mean that it doesn't really affect your life. And there are lots of cultural stories about pain. There are some that says it's useful to you. There are some that say you should just get on with it, and it's a normal part of life. And all of that, to a certain extent, is true, until it isn't. What I find interesting is, so you're a psychologist... So you're dealing with pain at the receiving end, up in the, in the head, I guess, rather than at the source. Well, that's a great question because we don't always know where the source is. So pain is a private mental event. It's something that you experience and only you can experience. It's not the only one. If you think about most private mental events like grief, love, fear, depression, these are all things that have no external referent that you can't measure by somebody else having more expertise than you. You are the only expert in it. So as a psychologist, I'm interested in not only in people's own experience of their pain, but in the consequences of that pain, what it does to their life, and how they struggle to live with it. I mean, reading about your research, I was thinking how, I don't know how you perceive the colour blue, and yet we have a common language about it, and I guess it's the same with pain. And sometimes... People seem to deal with pain in different ways, and that's, I suppose, <laughs> the heart of what you're dealing with, is what's serious, what's not, what needs to be dealt with, what can be done with, by behaviour, I guess. That's a great observation. I think that, unlike the colour blue, 
nobody really challenges you about your sense of a colour, but somehow we do challenge each other about pain. Yeah, why is that hurting you? You know, it's not serious. Exactly, we can become quite punishing about other people's pain. And in fact, there's good research that shows that there's what we call a fundamental human pain bias in that we judge the pain of other people to be less than ours, or less than they judge their own pain. So mothers and fathers will judge the pain of their children to be less than their child will. Nurses will judge the pain of their patients to be less than the patient does, etc. We all downplay the pain of other people. It's part of your remit then to say, no, hang on a minute, this is a really serious part of people's experience of health. It is. We recently wrote a special commission for The Lancet on children's pain. And it had four action points in it. And the first was to make pain matter. It was exactly this topic of, really, we need to pull it out of the shadows and start talking about it, because then we can do something about it. The one of the other points was then to make pain visible. And what that's about is everybody has a right to have their pain assessed. So once you're able to talk about it, once you're able to accept it, then we can measure it, hopefully then do something about it. Having done that, for the patient, for the person who's suffering it, it sounds almost trivial to say, are you just saying there are ways of coping with it? Or I'm not quite sure what the next step is for you, I guess. Sure. So in the Centre for Pain Research, we're interested in both discovery and innovation. So on the discovery side, we're really trying to understand exactly why some people develop pain and others don't. And why some people develop pain that is of high impact, that's hard to live with, and other people don't. Or some of us are able to cope with all sorts of challenges in our life, with divorce, with grief, with all sorts of losses. But somehow pain that doesn't go away seems to disassemble people, seems to take them apart. It's just too difficult to cope with. So we're interested in why is that? How can we do that? And once we understand that, the second part of the centre is interested in innovation, which is how do we create new ways to help people in their situation? So you asked about coping. Yes, we're amazing as human beings. We can cope with all sorts of stresses. But pain is a really particular type of problem that's hard to actually come to terms with when it's there all day, every day, affecting every part of your life, affecting all of your relationships, and with no seeming easy solution. So we have to help people in new ways of coping. I mean, pain is surely your body's way of saying, oi, there's a problem, sort it. Acute pain is, yeah. So short-lived pain is. See, that's part of the problem, right? So acute pain is all about there's a danger in your environment. You need to sort it out and tell other people about it. So that's what you do. You shout out loud and you move away from the source of it. But chronic pain, that's what we deal with, pain that's long-lasting, that's been there for six weeks or longer, that is no longer diagnostically useful, doesn't tell you anything about the world. And actually, when you're telling people about it, they're starting to turn away, lose empathy, because they don't know how to help. Oh, you're still telling me about your pain. So suddenly you're left alone, very isolated, and people are no longer finding it easy to help you. So this is exactly the problem we've got, isn't it, right? Pain is often seen as a symptom of something else. You find there's something else, you cure it, pain goes away. But what if your problem is actually a disease or a disorder of the pain system itself? So there's not necessarily an injury there at all, but you go on behaving like there is. There can be, but there's an alteration in that pain system. Mm -hmm. It's hard to understand, isn't it? So so it's a primary 
problem of your pain system. It may have been related to an original damage elsewhere, or it may just have emerged as part of that system. Locked into your central nervous system, it could be at a spinal level, it could be at a brain level, but there are alterations in your system that keep sending messages that are irrelevant to your survival. And is that quite prevalent with chronic pain, with pain that's long-lasting? It is. It's 40% of the adult population. Over the age of 40, you're likely to be developing, sorry for your listeners if you didn't know this, but you're likely to have at least one chronic pain condition. It is part of life, and that is part of our solution. If it's so common, does it mean it's trivial? And I think people can adjust to a life lived in pain, and all around us people are doing that. We're here to help those who have pain that makes it hard for them to adjust to it. Among those for whom it is hardest, children, too young to understand what pain is all about. It's just there. And that's what motivates Emma Fisher, a versus arthritis research fellow at the University of Bath, who told me the special concerns for children are all too often overlooked. So some people would argue that children are just small adults, but I see them quite differently. So I think developmentally they are very different because, first of all, you have a parent-child relationship and we know that parents have a huge influence on their child's behaviour, especially when they have pain. And so a parent's instruction can be very powerful into what that child does when they have pain. So you get parents who will say, get over it, get up, go, you're fine. And then you get other types of parents that will say, no to me, sit on the sofa, don't do anything, rest up until you feel better. And we know that with kids with chronic pain, that can be quite harmful because those children become very deconditioned and they experience more pain when they have parents. So that's kind of one side of it. You also have children who are developmenting in terms of their emotions and their understanding of pain. So often new painful experiences are just very new for them and they're learning how to handle them, how they feel and how long they last. And if you think about a baby who has pain, so you know, you've got a premature baby who might need quite a lot of surgery. Actually, if they have a painful experience, that's most of their life experience. And we know that pain experienced in early childhood can really have very long-term impacts into the future. I mean, I guess the sound of a baby crying mm. in pain, mm-hmm. you know, a child running around, having a lovely time, they fall over, scrape their knee, and it's just an instant switch, and they demand something from the adults around. Yeah, it's astounding actually because, I mean, even in babies, if you ever speak to a mother, then they'll always tell you, I can tell when my baby's in pain. And you know that through vaccinations, for example. So there's a lot of guidance out there on managing pain during child vaccination, but very few of them are actually implemented in practice, even within Western medical systems. I mean, is part of it with children the lack of understanding, in in a sense, the immediacy of the experience of pain? I think even in adults, the immediacy is important, but adults have more autonomy to be able to deal with that, and they have more experience, and they have more power to be able to go and get a paracetamol off the shelf or something like that, whereas a child will always rely on a parent to interpret that pain and then do something about it. So I think that it's a bit of both, but, I mean, there are kind of historical examples. So, for example... In the 1980s, we know that babies born prematurely weren't given analgesics during major surgery. And we look back on that now and we think, gosh, that's very unethical and how could they have done that? But that was common practice in the 1980s and before that, and it took Jill Lawson, who's a very famous advocate for pain now, it took her, and sadly her baby boy Jeffrey died after five weeks, but it took her to really start to ask some of the questions around, well, why didn't you give my child any analgesics when they were going for surgery? 
to make that shift within pain science. And one thing that we bring up in our Lancet Commission on paediatric pain is what are we going to see as unethical and unwise in another 40 years in this field? Do you have any ideas? Yeah. I mean, presumably when you're asking that, it's because you see things which you'd like to change. Yeah, there's so much that we'd like to change. So in that Lancet Commission, we had four major goals. So make pain matter, make it understood, make it visible and make it treatable. And I think that anyone researching the area would say, well, we try and do that or we do do it. But I think there's still many different leaps that we can make within the field. So, for example, pain is not regularly assessed within a hospital setting. And even though children go for surgeries and they have injections and things like that. We don't often manage the pain. Pain is seen as a byproduct of that. So you're often told by the nurse, it's just a jab, it'll be fine. And then you have no pain relief and then you go away and and you get on with your day. But actually, we can manage children's pain a lot better. Similarly, after surgery, you know, asking children pain regularly, making sure that their pain is managed is so important in terms of their recovery and their rehab. I mean... Right, so that sounds trivial. There, there are gaps, you're saying, yeah. already. And, and this is what I mean. Like A lot of people will say, well, of course we treat children's pain. That's the ethical thing to do. But unless you're assessing it regularly and treating it with the wide range of options that we have now, that's where we need to get to. OK, you're saying it's not being done. Do you know this? Because do you go into hospitals? Do you talk to the doctors? Do you talk to the patients, to the children? Yeah, so it's shown in research, but my experience is within orthopaedic clinics. So I recruit children through orthopaedic clinics in the southwest. So these are children with broken bones, sprains, ligament tears, etc. And the clinician will look at the x-ray. They will go in and they'll talk to the child and they will diagnose and they will give a treatment course, you know, boot, cast, etc. But I rarely hear and see clinicians ask about their pain score. So, so I think treating that pain is really important. It's not just fixing the bone, but it's also treating the pain that's associated with that break. And is that just using painkillers or is there more to it than so that? So there's more to it. So we've done some work with the World Health Organization. What pain management to give to children? So typically within pain management, there are three different compounds of treatment. So you've got pharmacological treatments, so the analgesics and the drugs that we can give children. There's physical therapies and there are psychological therapies. And what's interesting across those compounds is that there's more evidence for psychological therapies than there are for physical or pharmacological in the area. So we know that psychological therapies have small to moderate effects at reducing pain intensity and disability in children with chronic pain and we know from other evidence that some analgesics work for some children but most won't work for every child and physical therapies the evidence isn't there yet to really show what it does but it is likely to help children get more functional. But for the child in the orthopaedic clinic Mm. if the physician then assesses this is a six or an eight Mm. on the scale Mm -hmm. how does that help the patient in the long run? So in that setting, because that's an acute pain setting, well, A, they can recommend analgesics for the child to take, but if they're at risk of developing long-term pain, which is where most of my work focuses, there is an opportunity, perhaps, to triage them to receive that psychological help a bit earlier and then prevent the onset of chronic pain. So it's a long-term consequences that... 
are absolutely concerned for you. Absolutely, yeah, because we know that when children go on and develop chronic pain, they're more likely to miss out on school, they don't do as well academically, they have less friends, and so those long-term consequences not only impact them and their family, because the parent might have to take time off work, it'll obviously impact on any sibling relationship, but there's also a risk of them not being able to contribute as fully to society as what we might think. I mean, so, yeah, I broke my bones as a child. It's not had a long-term impact, but there are some for whom it does? Yeah, yeah. so we know, so from a recent study that we've run, we know that about 14% of them will develop long-term pain. Now, that varies across studies, so another study in the US found 30% of their kids developed long-term pain. So there's a bit of variability in the statistics, but there does seem to be this significant proportion of kids that will go on and develop long-term pain after an injury. Is that to do with the healing process, or is that to do with the psychology and the fear of the pain? Well, we're trying to find that out. Come back to me next year. (laughs) But I think that it will be a bit of everything. So definitely the psychology we know plays a role. So fear of pain, avoidance, um, parent behaviours, and child depression, we know that they are risk factors of developing long-term pain in this population. But the other area that we're really interested in is that social side. So the parent-child interactions and then what's happening with their friends at school. Well, I was going to ask about that because (laughs) talking to Chris, he said part of the trouble is that adults get bored of another adult's pain. The children at school, A, there's their peer group, there's the teachers who are busy trying to manage a big classroom and there's Mm. this annoying kid all there. I mean, presumably you would like to see people working with a lot more than the child himself or herself. Yeah, and that's something that we've really highlighted through the Lancet work is that we don't just need to target the clinicians, but we need to see this across the board. So teachers, community leaders, parents, obviously. There's a whole group of people that we can target through these interventions. Because you're right, when a child is in pain at school, if the teacher doesn't fully understand and validate that child's pain, then they are seen as the nuisance child in the room that isn't doing their work or, or needs to leave or needs to stand up and is quite disruptive in terms of that class environment. We need a lot more education to teachers and head teachers and PE teachers to help them understand what chronic pain is and what it means. Because not all chronic pain is visible, of course. So that child looks like they're a normal child. So why do they need special permissions? So a lot more education around that area would be really helpful. And you said one of your projects was with the World Health Organization. Mm. They came to you? You went to them? To... They came to us uh, was a few years ago. So they wanted to update their guidelines on pain management for children with chronic pain. And at the time, we had recently published an overview review on pharmacological therapies for kids with chronic pain. And we found an amazing lack of evidence in that area. So there were only about seven trials across all chronic pain conditions, all paediatric ages. That was quite astounding to us, that there was such a lack of evidence. And yet the first thing that you get given when you go to a pain clinic is a drug. And so we kind of tried to push that message out that we need a lot more evidence in this field and we need to consider pain management not just as a pharmacological intervention but also we have a lot of evidence in psychology and some in physical therapies. And then what we did is we updated the evidence in all three domains, presented that evidence to them and then they created their guidelines off the back of that. So that conversation has affected the way that children are treated across the world? Absolutely, yeah. And that's the way it should be as well, because, you know, if you go into any multidisciplinary pain clinic in a Western hospital, they will have those three entities, or at least they should have those three entities when they're treating kids with chronic pain. And so back to where we started this episode, in the pain research lab of Professor Ed Keogh, where I had paperwork to fill in. Okay, doctor, it will be uncomfortable 
rather than extremely painful. Well, that's useful to know. Fill in the form before he would demonstrate a practical yes. approach Sorry, to studying pain. So that's a yes. Uh, no, I'm not any of those. I'm not. Hang on, that's a no. Super. Just I have to say, it's a very big electric cable you've adjusted. <laughs> what sort of current are you going to pass through there? Ed had strapped a small electric heater to the soft, delicate part of my forearm. The cable was carrying control signals as well as power. What you're going to do is you're going to get sort of a, a series of increases in heat and temperature, and we're just looking at what your threshold actually is. So when you're ready, tell me when to start. And yeah. Go. Okay, so here it goes. And on with the pain. Oh, ah, oh, oh, ah, 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 Am I, oh, that's terrible. Have I failed? No, not at all. No, there's no, there's no failure. <laughs> this is because it's detecting your threshold. Is, that's the key thing. So it's going again. Okay. Oh, 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 God. Blimey. And there'll be a third and final time. Okay. Right. Okay. I mean, in a sense, this second time I just sort of braced a bit harder yeah. for it. Here it comes. No, no, you're cheating. Oh, 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 then the second and third time were fairly similar around 48 degrees. Your threshold slightly increased. And that's probably because, you know, when you first took part in it, that anticipation would have kicked yeah. in. And, and then, I didn't quite know what to expect, yeah. you know, so. And, and then the second and the third time, you're sort of getting a little bit used yeah. to it. Although, from your experience, so in terms of the experience, what, what, what was the sensation you experienced? What was interesting was until it got painful, I didn't really notice it. It sort of onset. That was the thing which was quite interesting. I mean, we've all felt a kettle or something mm -hmm. like that. So it's that kind of temperature. And I guess this is quite a sensitive part of the skin, the, the arm, I guess. Oh, yeah. And, uh, what, what you're describing there is actually what we know physiologically is that there, there's a system called the nociceptive system, which is the sort of the pathways which really kick in at a particular point. So early on, when the temperature was lower, you could have some sensory detection, but then those nociceptors, they don't really kick in until they hit a particular point. So, so they're kind of threshold system. Yeah, exactly, yes. Yeah. So you're, you're, what you're, and that's what we're measuring here, is at what point does your nociceptive system kick in, and then in turn, how do you experience them? That's a painful event. I mean, it's an interesting career. Uh, I mean, you do this quite a lot, I guess. Yes, yes indeed. And I think, and, you know, I think the, the key thing is what we're doing here is we're looking at pain in a very controlled environment. Um, it's highly controlled. We know exactly what's happening to you, and we can turn it off and turn it on immediately. That's actually unlike what happens in the real world, of course, mm. where when you're, you, know, you, you do hurt yourself, then you can't just turn it off and on again. So that's one of the limitations of these sorts of approaches, is that whilst we, the advantage is we can control it, we can stop it, and we can be very precise around what's happening, its limitations are that it doesn't really reflect what happens in the real world. Well, well and this is quite interesting. So I, I can still feel the sensation in my arm. I have to say, 
I cannot see any mark whatsoever, so I think I avoid any actual burns. Oh yes, so we're very careful here that this is not going to cause injury. Okay, so my threshold is about sort of 45, 46 degrees, yes, yes. which I presume is physiologically determined below the temperature at which injury might kick in. I mean, is that pretty normal or am I... Oh no, no, it's, it's, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, I mean the, the thresholds do vary from person to person, but they're around that sort of mark. What we know is that even though the underlying, if you like, physiology is clearly kicking in, you're still making a judgment. And we go, yeah, okay, now I'm making a decision that's painful. So your perception of it is actually critical here. And the other thing is that, yes, the, the thresholds are fairly you know, similar, but there is, there is variation. And actually, that's one of the interesting things we have is what factors might produce some differences between people, you know, slight differences. And so we're interested in how pain varies and the factors that have an impact on that. I mean, presumably it's differences between people, mm-hmm. maybe difference between prior experience as well. I don't know, t- t- tell, tell me yeah. why it's interesting to do this. Okay, so I'll give you two examples from the, the work that we do here in Bath. Um, one area is for our individual differences. So how do people vary in terms of their pain thresholds? And one of the, the areas of work we do here is around looking at whether men and women differ in terms of pain thresholds. So we know that, for example, men and women vary in terms of their pain experiences, the amount of pain they have over the lifetime. And what we're interested in here is that actually you know, do men and women differ in terms of pain thresholds? And then importantly, what factors might then moderate those experiences or help explain that? So here what we're looking at are groups of individuals comparing people to see uh, is one group of individuals different from another in whatever the parameters. So just sticking with that then, in terms of the heat test, mm-hmm. is there a difference? Um, yes, there is. I mean, and it's not just us, actually, across a whole range of different studies. There are sort of um, sex and gender differences which come through here. And the type of tests we do here, the typical finding is that women report a, a lower threshold to pain in comparison to men. And is that just for heat or for different kinds of pain? Because, I mean, yeah, yeah. there are all sorts of pain that women in particular have to go through, which men never have to go through. Yeah. Um, but muscular pain or joint pain, I don't know. Yeah, no, definitely. And actually using the, these sorts of techniques which are mimicking the sort of everyday pains we have. So heat pain here is an example. We could also induce musculoskeletal pain, so pressure pain. And you get a similar sort of pattern emerging there. So the pattern does vary and it does seem to depend upon the type of induction protocol that you use. But generally there is this difference between men and women. But women tolerate childbirth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's, there are different experiences. I mean, one argument actually is if women are more sensitive to pain and vulnerable to pain, then that might be a reason why there's a lower sensitivity to it, because it's like an early warning signal. I mean, I suppose I'm surprised in the sense that physiologically, I would have thought my skin was much the same as the next woman's skin. I don't know. The, the whole pathway from the nerve endings to the brain to the psychology, the thinking about it, I mean, why does it matter? Why are you interested in this difference? I'm interested because there is a difference in pain experience and, and, and some people are, are more sensitive or more vulnerable to pain than others. And so in order to actually help people better, I think you, you sort of need to understand what the underlying mechanisms are, understand why pain varies. So if you understand why it varies, then you can perhaps have more targeted approaches towards how you might help people manage it or treat it. So this is part of a whole programme of work. Looking at In the lab, we're looking at how thresholds might differ, what factors might have an impact on that. But you have to step back and put it into a broader context. This is one form of evidence that we'll be looking at, for example, sex and gender differences in pain. Uh, so what's the next step, having done mm. this? Because 
I take it you've done this quite a lot of yes, times. Yes. <laughs> so. Well, I think, I mean, I've, I've alluded to, we, we've talked about here about, about the sort of cognitive and the individual sides or individual differences. We've talked about the biology, we've talked about the psychology. What we haven't really talked about yet is the more social side of things. And for me, I think that's really a, a whole area of interest and work that really needs to happen because on the whole we haven't looked outside of the individual and what we now know is that actually pain doesn't happen in isolation we experience pain with other people so the fact that when we were running through this experimental task we had face contact you know face mm. contact i was watching you watching me you know i could see your facial expressions i could hear your vocalizations you were telling me without telling me that you were in pain. Yeah? <laughs> so we actually communicate pain to one another, and that's absolutely fundamental to caregiving. If you don't recognise pain in somebody else, how are you going to be able to respond to it? So we know that the social context is really important. Who you're with, how you interact with them, these are all potential factors which have an impact on pain. So I'd like to move us into that much wider social context. I'm trying to work out how, that, how you do that. For example, mm. if I came in with my spouse, mm-hmm. you, so you have a couple in here, yep. you, you do the burn test on one person and you get the other person to look and then I guess swap seats. Yeah, so actually we've done those sorts of studies. We've actually had, we were called dyads, you know, couples coming into, into the lab and they could be friends, they could be strangers, etc. to see you know, what impact does somebody else have on your pain experience. And what we found here was within men, if they were accompanied by a male friend, they reported less pain. <laughs> well, yeah, we want to show off, don't we? Yeah, then that's also... You know, there's a number of different reasons why that might okay. be. I'm going for the trivial one. No, 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 but the, you're, what you're pointing to there is actually, you know, expectations, how other people do have an impact, how we might feel judged, for example, which is where I think you're, you're alluding to there. Yeah. It sounds... I keep on getting this message that there's this sort of sphere of ignorance, not even grasping with this aspect of people's lives that... Mm. You're, all of you here are trying to sort of deal with. Indeed, and actually one of the projects we're currently running here is a, is, a, is a large consortium which is looking at the psychological and social aspects of pain um, and actually embedded within this, right from the start, is lived experience. It's actually talking to people who have pain and asking them what matters to you and actually engaging with them right at the early stages of generating the ideas, thinking about uh, the direction we can go in. But then also, and as we travel through this, when we get to our results, how do you interpret this? How do you make sense of this? What's meaningful? So actually bringing it back to what, what really matters in people's lives. So I think it's changing, you know, maybe the focus away from getting rid of pain to living well with pain. Ed Keogh, Professor of Psychology and Deputy Director of the Centre for Pain Research, Living well with pain can involve dedicated counselling from specialist healthcare workers, though one outcome from a collaboration the University of Bath is involved with is a virtual reality approach that lets patients control their own therapy. Director Christopher Eccleston was keen to talk about it. A typical treatment programme that you would have, this is a form of rehabilitation. In an outpatient setting, would you might be six to eight people would come to a physical space and they'd meet real experts with expertise and experience in their heads who would help them develop the, the uh, change, changes in their lives. And of course the people are doing it themselves and they are doing it at home. But that's 
quite a restriction on the number of people who can do it. So imagine if all of that expertise could come home with you. If you could put it on the headset and you could meet a virtual coach or mentor who could help you doing all the different, uh, different things that you want to do in your own home, at your own pace, um, under your own control. And that's what we did. We set up a randomized control trial to test this new intervention. We've developed an avatar. She's called Sammy, a semi-autonomous mentoring intelligence. She flies into scope when you've got the headset on. You can talk to Sammy, and she guides you through the process. You're going to multiple spaces in this world, and then you're coming back and then working out what you've done. Uh, so I think it's a very much a development project. This is a research project that's really in transition. So we're working with Tor Bay in Timmouth at the moment. It's a great pain service there to try and find out how we get it into routine use in the NHS. So at the moment, it's still under development. Have you seen enough from your own research so far you know, to go out and argue that this is a really good approach to dealing with pain? Oh, I think it's definitely the way forward. And I think, yes, we, um, it's ready to be used. The issue is simply one of getting regulatory approval, which we're in the process of. And then uh, I, the other issue, I thought, would be persuading healthcare professionals to use it. But, you know, that doesn't seem to be a problem. Patients seem to really like it, and they really enjoy it, and they really like the innovation and the solutions. Let me tell you, this is the only randomized control trial we ever did where I had to close recruitment to the trial overnight. There was that much enthusiasm. There's that much enthusiasm and, which is the positive side, but I think there's also that much unmet need, which is the negative. People were just saying, you're trying to do something new to help. That's great. I want a piece of that. That is extraordinary. Um, You're never going to be out of business. The pharmacologists are going to keep on coming up with different treatments for for pain, for reducing pain. I guess uh, physicians are going to get better at healing damaged tissue and so on. But pain is always going to be there. And I do hope the pharmacologists and we will be helping them do come up with more solutions. And we're working very hard in neurotechnology as well here at the University of Bath, focusing on uh, pain. Um, we need we need everybody to be focused on it. Um, but you're right, uh, pain is, is going to be with us and, uh, and are helping people understand that at a policy level, at a cultural level, at a sociological level in society, but also at an individual level. People will keep coming saying, I can't make sense of this experience. Can you help me? And that's what we're here for. Christopher Eccleston concluding this edition of Research with Impact from the University of Bath. And I have to admit, it has been a real eye-opener for me to meet the team at the Centre for Pain Research. I learned things I'd never even wondered about because, well, pain is just one of those things, yeah? Well, no, it turns out. And if you've found it as intriguing as I have, you can visit go.bath.ac.uk slash researchwithimpact or follow at Uni of Bath. You'll find a whole range of stories there about research at the university. I'm Roland Pease. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode and to the others in the series. If so, please like and subscribe.